Matthew chapter 4, finishing that chapter this morning. We'll take a minute and pray for us before we read God's word together. God, every time we, uh, every day we wake up, every step we take, we need you uh, more, more than we recognize. And we need understanding and illumination from you more than we, than we truly comprehend this morning. And so we pray that consistent with your promises that your spirit would lead us into righteousness, remind us of the things that you taught Jesus, and that you'd imprint deeply within us a conviction to follow you and to follow what we hear this morning. Thank you that your word is living and active. Thank you that it encourages the faint-hearted, that it makes wise the simple, that we find in your word the pathway of life. And so I pray that your, your word would be life-giving power to us this morning. Thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for life and breath and all good things. And we give you thanks for it. And we do pray for Crossway Burgal this morning. We pray for Pray for Pastor Jason and the leaders there and the church family there. God, we pray for your special blessing upon their time as they baptize new believers, children and otherwise. That it be a sweet time of celebration, acknowledging your hand. Jesus, thank you that there's life found in you, that there's a new life found in you, that there's the hope of change found in you. So anyone in this room maybe feels the oppressive nature of sin and of darkness. God, I pray that the gospel will be so powerful this morning as to rid them of any sense of chains or sense of captivity to sin, that they would run to Christ and be free. Thank you that it is for freedom that Christ set us free, that we might walk in liberty and in strength and confidence in your promises and what you have done. So now as we read your word, God, would you... Would you instruct us, help us be humble and hungry as we read it together. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go to Matthew chapter 4. We're going to reread what Pastor Chris covered uh, last week, and then we'll cover in a particular way verses 23 through 25 in chapter 4 this morning. So starting in verse 12 in Matthew chapter 4, this is God's word for us, and this is what it says. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region, the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he, Jesus, saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them, and immediately they left 
the boat and their father had followed him. And he, Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick and those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So as we dive in this morning, what I want to do is I don't want to re-preach anything that Pastor Chris preached last week, but there is a way in which 23 and 25 are connected to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So if I was to ask you if you received good news recently, I'm sure many of you would would certainly affirm that you have. Like we've had countless babies born this last year. Uh, some of you may have gotten a new job recently. Maybe you got accepted into a certain part of college, or maybe you had uh, friendship or relationship restored. And you can think about good news. Like what would you qualify as good news? Like if all your debt was paid? Like if I told you, like if I was like Oprah and I said, every, every one of you has a new car when you walk out of here this morning, like... My guess is, I would assume, that most, if not all of us, would respond with a sense of joy. Like, that would be good news. But it would also demand a response from us. Like, it would be, it would be strange to see someone just kind of be nonplussed when they're given good news. And so, <clears throat> essential to this text, verses 23 through 25, is the picture that as we talk about Jesus as the king and his kingdom that the King Jesus delivers good news and it demands a response. It's the main idea this morning. So Matthew has, has done a thorough job time and time again demonstrating how Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament promises and prophecies. Jesus is the, the promised son of Abraham from the Old Testament. He's the one that the nation of Israel would be ultimately fulfilled in. He's the greater son of Abraham. He's the greater Israel. He's the, the promised son of David. He's the heir that would come and fulfill and occupy with faithfulness and righteousness the throne of King David forever. He's the Christ, the Messiah, the long-awaited one who is to come to save the lost. And in verse 15, the Pastor Chris covered last week, we see in verse 15 that Jesus is the prophet Isaiah's great light. He speaks of the region of Galilee. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. The light and life of Jesus, if you note at the second part of verse 16, it's for those dwelling in darkness. It's for those captive to the confusion and oppression for the Jew first, and then also for the Greek, or the Gentile, the non-Jew. You see that in Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first, and then for the Greek, or for the non-Jew. So Jesus provides light for those walking, 
or dwelling in darkness. It's interesting that Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah says those walking in darkness, then you pan forward to Matthew 4, it's as if Matthew's implying that when you walk in darkness, you're ultimately going to camp there. You're going to dwell there because he says dwelling in darkness. And my guess is there's probably someone in this room, all of us can probably have familiarity with the, the feeling of having wandered and walked in darkness for a season, finding ourselves dwelling in the midst of it, it taking us much deeper than we anticipated, keeping us much longer than we ever wanted to stay. And Jesus is the light that penetrates the deepest darkness. He's the life that invades the spaces that are saturated with death. He alone is the Messiah, the promised one who gives both light and life. Jesus shines a life-giving dawn on those who dwell in a land defined by death. And I want you to be convinced this morning, that whether it be in your own life, maybe for those around you in your life, that the light of Jesus can pierce the deepest darkness. As we come together to sing and to read God's word, it's, it's to is for us to be reminded that God is worthy of our praise and to be reminded of truths that secure our soul and give us hope for our mission to make him known. And central to that is the, the promise that the light of Jesus can pierce anyone's darkness, whether Jew or Gentile, slave or flee, free, black or white, poor or rich, that the gospel is God's power to save everyone who believes and King Jesus delivers good news for you. That's what we see in Luke chapter 2, right? You remember probably often if you grew up in church, if you've been to Christmas Eve service, you probably heard or read Luke chapter 2, the angels speaking to the shepherds in the field. What do, what do they say at the arrival of baby King Jesus? And the angel said to the shepherds, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Luke 2, verses 10 and 11. But what we see really clearly in verses 23 through 25, in a way that might surprise us a little bit, is Jesus came to preach. Like He came with an express purpose to proclaim, to herald the, the good news of the kingdom of heaven. And I'll demonstrate this just in a few ways because I think it's really important for us to understand. Verse 23, look there with me. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And Mark chapter 1, verses 38 through 39, says it this way. And Jesus said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. Listen to this part. For that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. The wording in Matthew 4, 23, that we just read is almost identically repeated in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. And it says this, it says, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And guess what's between Matthew 4 and Matthew 9? A massive sermon. The most famous sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. 
There's something significant about how Jesus, when he came, he came to preach. He came to speak words from God as God in the flesh, proclaiming the, the kingdom of heaven, the good news of the kingdom and the response that it demands. But he expressly came with the purpose of preaching. The centrality of preaching in Jesus' ministry is a reminder to us of how God, from the very beginning, used his word to work in the world and among his people. Let me briefly just summarize some ways we see that. He spoke at creation. Through his word, everything was created out of nothing because God spoke. He spoke in covenants throughout the Old Testament. What are his covenants? But God's commitment to his people and his purposes. He spoke at Mount Sinai, giving the law, giving his people a vision for what it looked like to live a life pleasing to him. He spoke from the mountain to his people. He spoke through the prophets, God's messengers. He spoke through Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1-2 says it this way, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And he speaks through mediocre preachers. Thanks be to God. You weren't supposed to affirm that. But I was just praying this morning, like so much of my security is found, like like even the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He's like, when I came, I didn't come with plausible words of wisdom. I didn't come to you with persuasive speech and the wisdom of men. But I came to you in demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. God speaks through mediocre preachers, and guess what? He speaks through his redeemed. He speaks through his people still until he returns. It's our express purpose to preach the good news, to speak the good news of the kingdom of heaven. You see this in so many places in so many ways. One of the most clear is in 2 Corinthians 5 to summarize that we have been reconciled to God, having been broken in our relationship from him because of sin. God in his kindness and his mercy through Jesus has reconciled us to himself. But not only that, he's given us a ministry of reconciliation. And what we do as Christians, please don't miss this, if you're a believer, what God does is he makes his appeal to the nations through you. An appeal to please be reconciled to God. God speaks through his redeemed, through his people, everyday ambassadors, appealing to the nations to be reconciled to God. Jesus was preaching the gospel so every Jew in the synagogues and every Gentile in the streets might hear and believe. Pastor Chris talked about the picture of how the passing of the baton, how the baton was never missed between prophets. They never missed a a transfer of that baton, and we can feel now the, the joyful responsibility that the baton has been passed to us as the church, missionaries for the purposes of God. We see in First Peter that our call is to proclaim the excellencies of God who is transferred out of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, the kingdom of light. 
The good news of the kingdom of heaven where the king is going to reverse every shade of the curse. That's the good news. We see this picture that God has the, the power and authority to reverse every shade of the curse of sin. So the healing that accompanies Jesus' preaching was both the confirmation of his power and also the complexion of his kingdom. And let me talk about what I mean by that. Verse 23 says, the king was healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Goes on in verse 24. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. News traveled quickly, and Jesus' fame moved fast. So if, if I was to tell you that there was an auto mechanic in Wilmington that was doing car repairs of any type for free, one, you'd probably take your car there this afternoon. But what you'd also do is you'd spread the news. And before we knew it, there'd be a line from here to Raleigh of people trying to get free car repairs. And this is a little bit what this is like. It's like wildfire. There's this man who has authority over demons, and he's making those who are sick well. He's making those who are paralyzed be able to walk. He makes the dumb speak. He makes the blind see. And in this healing, there was the confirmation of Jesus' power, and he also pushed from heaven into earth the complexion of heaven, what heaven looked like, and what it will be ultimately, and we'll talk more about that in just a moment. But the healing confirmed the good news that the power of Jesus is greater than every shade of the fall. In Matthew eleven five, John the Baptist's disciples come to Jesus, and they ask him a question like, hey, we need to tell John, are you the one to come? Are you the Messiah? Or should we be waiting for someone else? And Jesus' simple reply to them is this. He says, I want you to go back to John. I want you to tell him that the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor, the destitute, the powerless have good news preached to them. It's good for us just to sit under the magnitude of this. That Jesus is stronger than every seizure. He's more powerful than paralysis. Like every disease flees at his name. He's greater than every affliction and every pain. Demons shudder at his presence and flee at his command. And that's good news, but it's also complex news. Because we feel so acutely, and I know some of you even this week, journeying through personal pain and agony, those close to you that you've lost or even that you're losing now due to sickness and pain and disease. It's confusing to know what, like, how does this apply to to now. And unfortunately, the landscape of Christianity is riddled with false teachers. And their message would be something like this. The atoning work of Jesus on the cross assures you of healing in this life. The Bible paints a very different picture. The history of the saints, 
the history of the Apostle Paul, the suffering of Jesus paints a very different picture. And I want to say a few things really clearly. Do we believe God still miraculously heals bodies? A thousand percent. We believe that God still is in the business of accomplishing miracles. That God can do whatever he wishes and wants by his purpose, for his glory, by his power. Hard stop. Do we believe Christians are guaranteed healing in this life? No. We don't. Because the history of the church and of believers for all times demonstrates that that's not true. The untold story of every single person on these pages that was healed is that every single one of them died. And someone even once said, as it relates to Lazarus, one of the most famous healings of all, Jesus rose him from the dead after he was dead for a few days. He came out and he walked again and he ate with Jesus. He was with his family again. And one commentator kind of jokingly said that the sad thing for Lazarus, he had to do his dying all over again. But it's helpful to remember that every shade of healing right here and in the rest of the Bible is just a temporary taste of a heavenly reality. It's a temporary moment where the, the power of heaven is pushed into time and space and earth, but it's only temporary to fix our gaze to the fact that there is good news in the kingdom. It gives us a complexion for a future kingdom, not for today, but a permanent hope for tomorrow. Do we believe Christians are guaranteed healing in this life? No. Do we believe Christians are guaranteed healing? Yes. Yes. Thousand percent yes. That's the good news of the kingdom. That every shade of the fall, every ache and pain, every disease will fall flat at the feet of King Jesus when he reigns in heaven permanently with his people, there will be no more pain. Final, permanent healing is the assurance of every child of the king. Every ounce of sickness, every disease, every, every pain will be done away with. Seizures, paralysis, MS, cancer, Alzheimer's, diabetes, genetic disorders. Every source of pain and death will be done away with in the kingdom of heaven. We'll be present with the king, and in his presence there will be fullness of joy, pleasure and not pain forevermore. We will be complete, free, and sorrow will give way to irreversible delight. And I can't help but flip to Revelation chapter 20 to read you the words that God has given you to think about to fix your gaze upon, especially in light of the present suffering that we so often have to deal with. And this is the picture of the new heaven and the new earth, the, the ultimate consummated kingdom of God where God himself will dwell with his people and he will be with us. He will be our God. And it says this in verse 3. I'm sorry, verse 4. 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. The king delivers good news of the kingdom. He delivers good news but he also demands a response. This is what I want to finish with this morning as we go into the Lord's Supper together. In verse 17, if we kind of go back to what Pastor Chris covered last week, it says, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. The king has drawn near, and if he is the if he's the king of your heart, then he must be the king of your life. Like you have to respond, believe, receive what he offers. The king and his kingdom demand a response from you. And ultimately the response seems to be twofold in this section. Repent and follow. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand and follow me. That's what he says to the first four disciples. Right? Peter and Andrew, James and John, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Switch kingdoms. We've talked about this in the past. That the Bible gives this picture that every single person is in a kingdom of sorts. You're either in the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the beloved son, or you're in a kingdom that's not his, where he is not so often referred to as either darkness or light, or life or death. But as Peter and Andrew and James and John heard Jesus' voice, they immediately responded and followed him. It makes me think about John 10, 27, as Jesus talks about himself as the good shepherd. He says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. They left behind their former life, their profession, even the proximity to family to follow the king. And if I could just for a, a moment kind of pause, it's good for us to think about because the, there's an emphasis on the immediately they followed. Immediately they followed him. Immediately they left what they were doing and they followed Jesus. And so it begs the question of like, what about me? Like when I hear the, the voice of the Savior or if you hear his voice today through mediocre preaching, like, what about you? Will you follow him? And so often, if I get submitted to you in these terms, our hesitation is often because of misplaced affections. You see this in John chapter 3, where Jesus, again, is depicted as the light who comes into the world. It's in John chapter 1, but later in John chapter 3, it says that those who were exposed by the light that Jesus brought, many didn't believe. The reason being is because they loved the darkness. Their affections were placed in other places. They, they loved to, to wander in the fields that weren't the greener pastures of Psalm 23. The fraudulent saviors and fraudulent satisfaction. Our hesitation is often because of misplaced affections. Our delay is often owing to poor 
accounting, a poor representation of cost benefit. In Mark chapter 8, a section that you probably be familiar with. You don't have to flip there. But when Jesus calls people to follow him, he says this, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life, most people want to save their life. Jesus says, if you want to save your life, you'll lose it. But whoever loses his life will save it. This is the upside down nature of the kingdom, which we're going to see in vivid color in Matthew 5 through 7. The ways of God are upside down from the world. You want to chase after life in this life, you'll find yourself losing your life. If you want to find life, it means lose your life here for Jesus and his gospel, and you'll find it in the end. He goes on to say, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul, or delay is often owing to poor accounting because we deem it to be more beneficial to try to gain things here than to follow Jesus here and the associated things it might cause us to lose. But there will be those who, like the disciples, leave everything behind to follow Jesus, and there will be others who, like the great crowds, quote-unquote, follow Jesus out of curiosity, selfishness, or even Confusion. We'll see this play out more in the book of Matthew. Crowds often followed Jesus. They're often close to him and they saw him work miracles and they benefited from the food that he multiplied, but not all of them actually followed him. And it kind of zooms us in on the reality that just because someone is familiar with Jesus doesn't mean that they're a follower of Jesus. And we live in an age where following someone, put in the realm of social media, when you follow someone largely means that you have the freedom to observe, to watch, to like things that, that they do or that they say that you like, even benefit from them in some ways. But in many, if not most cases, we don't really know them. We just follow them. At the end of the day, if you follow someone on social media, you don't have to take in anything you don't want to. Like, I'll follow you until you say or do something I don't really care for, and then I'm out. And that's what happened for many with Jesus. He began to say hard things. He began to cause them to count the cost of following him. And because of their misplaced affections and their defective accounting, many turned and went the way of the world. Or maybe it's something like this, more like flash mob Christianity that just kind of draws people out from everywhere because it seems cool. Depending on where you are, maybe it just it seems compelling and interesting or new, so people come out of the woodwork. But here's what I'd say. King Jesus isn't interested in amassing curious onlookers as not what he is building. He's looking for devoted followers. As we get set to take communion together, it's good for us to think about the fact that even at the end of Jesus' life, on the day of his crucifixion, there were crowds that followed him. There were people that were near to his sacrifice. 
But many in that crowd weren't there to worship him or submit to him. They were there to mock him. They yelled, Matthew chapter 27, verses 40 through 42. He says, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. As we take communion together, for those of us who have trusted and believed in Jesus, we have to be reminded that Jesus saved others by not saving himself. He healed others by being stricken to the point of death on the cross. The good news of the kingdom is our king has given his own life for our ransom. The good news of the kingdom is our king took the guilty sentence so criminals could be set free. The good news of the kingdom is our king has given us freedom so may his fame increase and may the nations and may you follow him this morning. My encouragement to you there's always a temptation in a room this size as we take the Lord's Supper together just to do it because everybody around you is moving and you think you should. The only reason to take this is if you have trusted in the blood of Jesus shed to pay for your sins and the body of Jesus broken so that you didn't have to be broken in the end. And if you're ready to believe in him, like having heard his word from his mouth, the good news of the kingdom, that he is the only one as the king that can reverse the consequences of the fall. If you believe in him today, that he's given you the, the privilege and the right, as we see in John chapter 1, to be called children of God. But you have to first realize the predicament that you're in apart from Jesus. The good news is only good in light of the bad that every single one of us, apart from Christ, is destined for condemnation. But the good news is that Jesus was condemned so that you didn't have to be. He was executed so that you wouldn't be an object of God's wrath for all eternity. That the hell that would have taken an eternity to pour out on me was exhausted on Jesus in just a matter of hours. Through his wonderful, merciful, sacrifice. If you're not a Christian this morning, my plea to you is believe in him for salvation while you have time. And if you are his this morning, bow your head with me and let's just enjoy the grace of God we've been promised, the sweet picture of the cross, the king delivered for our ransom, the king rendered guilty so that we could be justified. The king granting freedom so that captives could be set free. God, what words could we give you that would be sufficient thanks? There are none that we could find. Your praise is inexhaustible. Your grace is greater than all our sin. It's greater than our imagination. 
But what we do know from your promises is that we can have peace with you through the Lord Jesus Christ. But the good news of the kingdom is that we have a king who's given his life for his subjects so that they'll be welcome in the kingdom, the place where there's no more sorrow, no more pain, no more sin, no more grief. So help us this morning as we take communion together to, to do what you have said we do when we do this together, that we proclaim your death, Jesus, until you return. Our only hope is in you. Our only boast is in the cross of Christ to which we've been crucified to the world and the world to us. Where we find sin still lingering and find our feet still maybe in places in middle ground where we're trying to have things of this world and still have you. God, I pray that you'd help us to turn, to confess, to turn away from those things and to turn to you. Help us to rightly examine our hearts this morning. Thank you, Spirit of God, that you minister to us, that you reveal the things that left to ourselves we wouldn't see. Lead us in the right thinking, in the right living, and lead us to worship you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.